Hello everyone and welcome to the June 2019 Mark Leverage podcast. Thank you ever so much for giving up half an hour of your time to to listen in. And as usual, I've prepared about half a dozen or so different topics which I want to chat to you about. And we're going to start by something that occurred to me not that long ago, about two or three weeks ago, when I was reading the blurb that went with a, a new release from one of the major magic dealers. And I was reading through the, through the description of the trick and towards the bottom, there was a phrase which caught my attention when it said that the creator, the person who actually came up with this particular routine, had originally created this in order to put on his Instagram account. And I thought, ah, now that's interesting. So what he'd done was, and, and I won't tell you which effect it was, because there are, but there are many like it. He had obviously produced some eye candy which looked absolutely fantastic, particularly when it's filmed at a very specific angle. And as such, when you're putting some uh, some video either on your website or on an Instagram account or on your Facebook page, then clearly you are in control of what the audience sees. And, And so I thought it was particularly honest in a way, when you think about it, that it's that the producers had said, well, this guy had created this originally for his Instagram account. And then they went on to say, but of course, it's fine for commercial performance. Mm, Yeah, okay, maybe. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that I think in the last five or six years, particularly, there have been quite a lot of tricks which could have that line originally produced for Facebook page or whatever. In the old days, before social media, and in fact, before any sort of online video was there the only time that anybody ever filmed anything was for television Uh, and there weren't that many people obviously needing material for that sort of particular medium now with everybody having basically not only on their social media pages but also on their own website pages lots of video the temptation to to get these wonderful quick highly visual highly magical looking tricks and film them and just use them as trailers, if you like, for your act, it's fairly overwhelming. Now, the only slight disadvantage here is that if some of these tricks that you have on, let's say, on your website, advertising you as a magician, you perform them. When you go and do it live, how many of them can you actually then go and do? Isn't it Trade Descriptions Act? You know, well, you you showed these three tricks. You've not done any of them. Well, of course, we don't all perform the tricks that are on our websites every time we go and perform. But more dangerous, perhaps, than just not doing them because you can't is thinking in doing them because you think you can. You see, if you think to yourself, well, OK, this looks fantastic. I'm going to do it live. And you don't realise how bad perhaps some of the angles are or what other issues there may be with it as a product. Maybe it needs a reset or a particular way of setting it up before you can actually perform it. If you're an inexperienced commercial performer and you think, well, these these tricks look great, I'm going to go and do them, you're quickly going to discover that, yes, they do look good on your Facebook, Instagram page, but when you actually get live, they are hopeless because you they're not practical enough for you to actually do in the real world. And I do wonder how many, perhaps... Uh, magicians who don't have so much experience are buying these tricks because they think they're going to be for their act. As I say, great just to put onto your onto your social media page, perhaps. But what about if you then try to do them live? 
you do realize, don't you, that you possibly can't. And one of the things that uh, when we review products for Magic Scene, we get a lot of this, that there are now lots of tricks coming out that look absolutely fabulous in the trailers. But then we feel duty bound to point out, well, actually, yes, from this particular angle, it does look great. Or with this little bit of selective editing that they've done in the trailer, it looks miraculous. But you have to bear in mind that this is not the case. There are extra things you're not being shown that you're going to have to do. It is not a commercial trick. The angles are, are appalling and so on and so forth. But I just thought it was interesting that this particular description had actually mentioned that that's what the person had produced it for. Because I've never really noticed that before, whether it's ever been written before. Even though I suspect that a lot of the tricks that have been released in recent times were also prepared for similar purposes. Now, as performers, naturally enough, we are totally used, unless we've not done very much performing, the rest of us are totally used to standing in front of people and presenting our magic. Being in the limelight, having lots of people looking at us and listening to what we say, it's just part of the job, isn't it? It's just what you do as a performer. And when you first start to perform, yes, it's it's tricky, it's difficult. It's sometimes you can feel a bit almost embarrassed uh, at the way that uh, you have to stand there and, and spout forth to the assembled masses. But obviously after a while, you get used to it and you lose sight of the fact that what you're actually doing for most people, it is one of the two or three worst things that they can ever imagine doing. Standing up and having to talk in front of a lot of people for the average person is something they are terrified of and will often avoid. And yet as magicians, let's take, for example, in a, a stand-up act, lots of us like to use members of the audience, don't we, to get them out because you can have a lot of fun with people from the audience and they add an extra dimension to the show. And when those people come out, what we may forget is that for most of those people, particularly if it's, let's say, a big show on a stage with, with strong sort of spotlights and so on blinding their eyes, they're not used to it. Um, and so when they get onto the stage, sometimes they freeze a little bit. Or, and this is something that I um, saw the other day, they actually don't behave in the normal way that you would expect. So we get like we have to give it a lot of instructions often to spectators, you know, sit down here, hold this, have you got some money I could borrow, open the wallet, shuffle the pack of cards, whatever it might be. We we give lots of instructions. And for us, steeped as we are in performance and magic itself, it seems terribly straightforward. The instructions that we give how could it possibly mis be misinterpreted? And yet it can. And a friend of mine um, showed me a video of him performing for some lay people on a stage. And he had a gentleman up to help him and he was do doing a, a book test for him. And he needed to get um, one of three books chosen and it was going to be a force. So he was using a sort of equivocate and he was asked the spectator to do a sequence of actions that would mean he would be, depending on how it went, he will end up with the book that my, that my friend needed him to have. But what we were both looking at and, and, and observing and noting particularly was the way that the spectator misunderstood the things that my friend was saying to him. So when he said, just 
put your hand on one of the books, instead of just putting his hand flat on onto one of the books, he grabbed it and tried to remove it. Now, it just so happened that this was not the book that he needed to end up with. So my friend couldn't let it go. So this then, he said, no, 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 don't take it. Just put your hand on it. And again, the guy, he the guy wasn't trying to be difficult. He just didn't understand. He thought three books found in front of him. He said, put his hand on one. He thought it meant grab one and take it. So then a slight tug of war ensued. So eventually he managed to get him just to touch one and then he needed to touch another one. And, and this these series of, of um, requests went on. And each time the request was made, the spectator misunderstood it and it looked like uh, when you know what he what my friend was trying to do it looked like he was being deliberately difficult he really wasn't he was just misunderstanding and I think that's something that perhaps we need to remember and work around if you've got to do or get a spectator to do very specific things that are important for the outcome of the trick it really does pay to think about how you're going to word the instructions and how many instructions in a way you give at any one time. You know, if people are asked to do one thing and they do it and then you ask them to do another thing, which they then do, and then a third thing, that's easier for someone under a spotlight who's not used to being on a stage. That's easier for them to comply with than if you say, I'd like you to do this and then this and then this all in one go. So if you have tricks which do require, and this is often, of course, with mental effects particularly, very specific words need to be used. Spectators have to do things in a particular way. You need to make sure that your instructions are absolutely unequivocally clear in order to make sure that the spectator doesn't mess up the trick that you're trying to perform. I was watching some magic stuff on YouTube the other day and, um, you know, on the sidebar where they bring up other things you might be interested in. And there was um, one of the things there was a, a video of the Eric Chen's FISM Act winning act, his Grand Prix FISM winning act from last year. And I suddenly realised I'd never actually seen it. I thought, oh, it'd be interesting. So I watched his performance and I thought it was absolutely outstanding on every level. It showed acting artistry it showed skill creativity imagination i loved the theme um, and the way that the magic itself illustrated the theme and i loved his the way that his expression was was as if he was surprised at what was happening and that he was kind of almost as we were he was realizing well if this happens when i do this what about if i do it like this and i thought the whole thing was just just perfect and, and totally deserving of, of winning of the FISM Prize. And I was so struck by this and quite moved by this. I thought there were so many elements that must have come together, the, the, the skill and the practice and the thought that went behind it. So I sent a link to the video to my wife, Roz. Now, now Roz is, she doesn't watch much magic. She likes magic. She likes good magic. And I thought she might really appreciate seeing this because I consider this to be top top magic so i sent it to her and i said look i know you don't normally do this watch much magic but have a look at this tell me what you think i think it's really great so she watched it and then afterwards we were talking about it and i said so what did you think and she said yeah yeah it was great very much magic for magicians though wasn't it i said well uh, yes i mean it was it's a fism you know it's it, you're trying to 
put together an act that will perform for and fool and impress knowledgeable magicians so yes it is magic for magicians and she said yeah yeah but it's not you couldn't do that act anywhere could you i said well you, you could in certain circumstances anyway she went on on this theme and it was, it was quite funny really because i found myself defending the something that i would not normally defend i'm a very commercially minded magician and normally if things don't aren't particularly practical or they, they they you can't do them under most circumstances i'd be saying well it's all very well but you know hey this isn't practical magic but on this particular occasion because i suppose of the context that i knew that this thing was being performed in and because i was so impressed with everything that went into it i would found myself defending this wonderful act from my wife who seemed she wasn't trying to to rubbish it or anything like that but she was just pointing out that yeah but it's it's magic for magicians it's it's all special tables and you know she she doesn't know that much about it but she knew enough to know that there were certain things behind it i just thought that was that was really quite quite funny that normally that would be me saying things like that instead of which it was her and I remember there was another occasion when I, I did a similar thing many years ago when when David Copperfield's flying illusion, we uh, saw it live when he was doing his tour, when he had performed, I think it was Olympia, wasn't it? Um, we saw it there and and I was blown away by it. And she said, yeah, it was all right. I said, how can you say that that is just all right? It is so you know the music and, and and the choreography and everything about it is so clever well it just must be strings of some sort that we that we just can't see and i thought that's ah, fascinating isn't it that that we as magicians appreciate the artistry behind something like david copperfield's flying because we know various methods and during the course of the presentation of that piece he very cleverly kind of shuts the door on our assumptions of how the thing is being done but when you're a lay person you don't see the subtleties of all of that and what you actually see is things in a more basic format well it must be strings because he can't really fly end of story it's like when people say well it went up your sleeve you're using a coin that's five inches in diameter and they say well oh, that came down your sleeve and you think shall i stand here and explain that my sleeve is not big enough to take a five inch I don't think I bother so anyway it's just interesting isn't it how lay people people not steeped in magic do see the things that we do and why perhaps sometimes despite our best efforts we maybe actually struggle a little bit to impress them now before I start on my next topic I just want to point out that no I am not retired or retiring from magic well i'm going to make that clear right now i have plenty of things that i want to do before i decide to give it up and i'm nowhere near that point yet i don't think i would be uh, putting together a brand new website if i had any intention of retiring so please don't make misconstrue what i'm about to talk about as being aha leverage is retiring no i'm not because I do want to talk for a few moments about the effect that retirement has on people when they're involved in magic. Now, for most people who are either semi-pros or amateur magicians, when they get to the point where they retire, it, it can be, if their circumstances are, are suitable, a perfect opportunity to at long, long last become a 
professional inverted commas magician because they've given up their real job and now they've got the time to go out and do paid shows so it's their only form of income so that they can genuinely say they are now professional magicians and since most people in their unless they only have a part-time job if they have a full-time regular job for years and years and years they've not been able to pursue magic probably as actively as they might want to never mind all the other things in your life whether it, your family and, and and social life and all the rest of it magic itself often is done a lot less than a lot of people would like and the fantasy is people often say even when they're they're middle-aged or whatever they say oh i wish i could now give up my the day job and do magic full-time but of course at that time of life when your expenses are probably at your highest very few people actually can afford to do that you either do it early or you do it late when you retire now my three best friends in magic have all retired and uh, two of them were semi-pro magicians so while they were working they used to go out and do paid shows the other one didn't all three of them now do a lot more magic than they ever did one of the guys does a lot of um, performing for money and the other two do less they do some but they do a lot less but they do a lot of magic so and they're all really enjoying it they're able to delve into magic in ways that they never had time to do before and it's given them a whole new range of interest. They, they can go to conventions that they want to attend now because they know there are less time constrictions. And they can study things in more depth. And they can basically just enjoy their interest much more fully. Then I was thinking about well, my situation as a, and the situation that pros have. When we decide to retire, don't we actually do not more magic, we do less magic because we've been doing magic all the time so when we retire then what's the alternative go and get a regular job no of course not uh, it's not the opposite of what people who are who have a regular job do of course where they do more magic it's not around the other way is it so and i don't know because i haven't quite reached it yet but i'm doing less than i did but i've not retired whereas pros who do retire they can, they can, yes, they can still go to conventions and they can still pursue magic on, on an amateur level. But I do wonder whether magicians who have been pros tend to do less, the opposite of what the amateurs do. Because in a way, if you think about it, if you're not going to do less, then why are you retiring? And that then begs the question, Do a lot, is that why a lot of pro magicians never actually retire? They kind of die in the job? It's simply because if they give it up, they've got they can't go and do their hobby because their hobby is their job. And so therefore, why would you want to give it up if you're going to carry on doing it? All right. As you say, you may do less of it, but if you're going to carry on doing it, you might as well get paid for it. So I suppose that's the difference then when people get to retirement age, different depending on what you've done previously in magic will depend on what you do in retirement with magic. When you're a pro performer, obviously you are trying to earn a living by doing magic. And in order to get enough shows to make a living, you clearly have to be fairly proactive in the way that you promote yourself and get the message out there that you are available. And when people in the general public get to hear that you're a performer, there are some people who spot an eye for a chance. 
and they will contact you and they'll say, ah, um, I understand you're a magician. Yes, yes. Um, do you do this type of, say, corporate event? Oh, yes, yes, I do. Are you free on this particular date? Look in the diary. Yes, I am. You take a few more details and so on. And they say, now, um, just wanted to point out, the person will say to you, um, there isn't actually a fee that we can afford to pay for you to come and entertain. But it's a wonderful promotional opportunity for you because the people coming to this corporate event are CEOs of companies, they're this, they're that. They're all movers and shakers in the local business community. And so obviously what we're actually doing is giving you an opportunity to promote yourself and to get the message out there and for you to be able to demonstrate in a real situation what you do. So how about it? Now, this is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because on the one hand, what they're saying is correct. What they're effectively doing is they're getting your services or they're trying to get your services for nothing. And the flip side is that as far as they're concerned, that what's the benefit to you is the promotional sort of potential of the people who are there, which might be right. But not all events have the right type of people there. And I think over the years, I've got slightly better at judging when, which is most of the time, to say, no, no, sorry, I have to charge a fee. And when it is actually a good idea to say, do you know what? I am actually going to do this one because this would be of benefit to me. Now, there are no guarantees, are there? Nobody likes, when you're a pro, you hate working for nothing. You really do. You feel you're, you're, you're cheating on yourself if you're not earning money when you're performing. But there are opportunities sometimes that will put you in a, in a strong position. And although there are no guarantees that if you do put yourself out there that you will get any business, if you do it right, there's a potential that you might. And, and so it's a sort of a value judgment. And I, the way I look at it is that occasionally there are opportunities which if I were to think about the amount of money I would spend, have to spend in order to talk to or reach the people who are going to be at this event, it would be huge. Instead of which I am actually getting the opportunity to showcase what I do for free. The only rider to this is that A, I have to have somewhere in the venue, in the room where the thing is taking place, my pop-up banner with my details on it. Secondly, I either want, if it's tables, I want every table to have my publicity on it, or I want permission to give out my cards like confetti. Otherwise, nobody is going to remember who you are if you don't do that. So under those sort of circumstances, I think it is actually sometimes a good idea to do something for free. Where I don't like it and where I won't do it is either where I don't think the target audience is really one that I'm interested in or where it's an audition for me with the people who are booking me. For instance, in, in the early days when people were not so used to seeing, say, strolling magicians or close-up magicians, they weren't quite sure how it all worked. Occasionally, if you approached a venue and said, oh, I'm a magician, I can do this around the tables, they might say to you, well, I'll tell you what, look, come in and work on next Thursday evening for an evening and then um, we'll see how it goes and then we'll see whether we're going to book you. Well, I, I would never do that because that was an audition. I felt like that was an audition for me. 
and I don't want to do auditions. That's just taking the mick. I think they should pay you for a one-off fee, get you to come in and do the job properly, and then they should decide whether they want to book you again. But on other occasions, because on, on those occasions, it, the, the benefit of the people that you're going to meet is, is it's marginal. It might be, but it probably won't be. And really all they want to do is get some free entertainment. So it's, it's kind of judging, isn't it, whether it's worth doing something for nothing or whether you should say, no, actually, I, I, I'm only going to work for a fee. And then you just don't work at all. Or maybe sometimes they go, right, OK, well, let me see if I can get you some money. Then mysteriously, suddenly uh, a few hundred pounds is suddenly in the offing because they did really want you anyway. They just kind of were trying it on. Now, talking about show promotion brings me to my final topic. And it's, it's a, I'm going to have a little sort of minor rant at this point because there's something that's been irritating me increasingly over the last year or so. Now, I've mentioned in the past a couple of times some of these online agencies, things like Bark and Add to Event, that type of agency who basically provided a shop window for us entertainers and for people to be put in contact easily with us. So people will go to the website if they're looking for a magician. They put all their details in once. It's pinged out to all the relevant people that, that the organisation happens to have on their books. And then we can put in, in quotes. And each time you put in quotes, it costs you some credits, which you have to purchase. It is actually reasonably economical way to get yourself in front of potential customers. However, and here's the rub. Unfortunately, increasingly, it seems to me that there is a, a sort of a, a race to the bottom in terms of the fees that the people who are using these sites are expecting to pay. More and more, people who are attracted by the one-stop one shop, one shop where you basically put your inquiry in without any effort whatsoever and then you get half a dozen people send your their, their details back to you and what's the first thing you're going to do you're probably going to line them all up and you're going to look at the fees and, and and make a decision without ever knowing what some of these people did because oh no that's too expensive i didn't want to spend all that now people who are applying for for magicians often have no idea what a sensible rate to to expect to pay is uh, and yet they will line up all the various figures possibly and so anybody who is either uppish in price or even, it seems to me, what we would term in the middle ground are not getting any bookings. It's all the people at the bottom who are going out for ridiculous fees who clearly have no idea. Well, maybe that is what they're worth. I, I can't say, of course, but certainly in monetary terms, they are not putting realistic figures, figures on it. And so they are going out and working a lot, probably not doing that great a job, perhaps, and leaving the, the rest of us who are also registered with these sites basically whistling in the wind. We're not just not getting very many of the bookings. You see, when somebody goes to book a magician and they go online and they, and they type into Google magician in the area and so on and so forth, um, they go to individual sites and they read the detail. When they go to one of these other sites, they don't read the detail they're more, I think, I suspect, attracted by the bottom line. And and this was sort of put across to me because um, there was an inquiry that came in a couple of weeks ago and it was for a, a corporate event. 
And this woman gave all the details of this corporate event and it, it sounded, you know, great, 100 people and it was a summer event and it was for, for business. You go, oh, corporate event, that's, that's good. So that'll be a, no doubt a decent, decent earner. And at the bottom, she wrote, looking for competitive rates as I have a tight budget. Competitive rates. That is actually doublespeak for cheap why doesn't she just write, I'm looking for the cheapest magician I can possibly find and I'm fairly sure I'm going to find one here. Because she might as well have written that. Competitive. It's not competitive. Competitive against what? It's competitive against all the other people's fees. But what about the quality? What about what they're going to deliver? Are they going to be any good? Are they going? Is that corporate event going to benefit from having the cheapest magician she can find there? I would suspect not. The trouble is it's a one-off event by the time that she's discovered that the guy that they booked for 100 quid is pretty rubbish. It's too late. And I think, well, I'm not going to book another magician, perhaps. So ah, it's, I find this really annoying that it's all been boiled down to just the price. Uh, and it's made me wonder whether this is definitely not something that I want to be involved with anymore because it's just not producing the right type of people who I want to talk to and who will value the, the money that I charge for the service that I offer. Well, there you go. Rant over. Well, listen, thank you ever so much for spending the last half an hour listening to all that. I hope you've found it interesting. And I also hope that you will be back with me next month for some more. Have a good month. Bye for now. <laughs>